Uh, folks, I want to share with you real quickly. I said I was going to mention this a little bit later uh, about Wednesday night and then what's going to be starting here uh, next week. A uh, couple of weeks ago, July 8th, in my sermon, I, I'm preached on, I talked about uh, five prayers that, that God laid on my heart back in April, five places. I just wanted to see God move uh, in our midst in such a way that, that, boy, we were compelled to tell the God story. And that kind of grew from some things I was praying about to our staff, to our deacons, and, and then ultimately sharing this with the church so that we're all looking together, praying together at how God is going to work and move. And, and as that was happening, we kind of focused on August and, and what God, how this might begin to work uh, and what God might do here, begin here in the month of August. And, and so one of the things we're going to do is put a real emphasis and a focus on prayer. So in our life groups, not in here, but in our life groups on, on Sunday morning, uh, starting next week for the four Sundays in August, we're going to be uh, Mark Batterson, the pastor at North uh, or National Community Church in D.C. Uh, we're going to be streaming his teaching on a book called The Circle Maker, which is on, on the power of prayer, on perseverance in prayer, uh, on seeing God move and work through the prayers of your life. I think most of us at some point in our lives, man, I wish I could pray better. I wish I knew how to pray. Folks, this, I believe with all my heart, will have a profound impact on your prayer life. And, and I, I said a couple of weeks ago, I would say it again today, I want so bad for you to be in a life group these next four Sundays. And I know about a third of you, that's not something you normally do, or, or maybe you've done it, but you kind of are hit and miss. If you can only come to one hour on Sunday morning, don't come to this hour. Go, go use this hour to go to a life group. Uh, folks, I really believe this can have a profound impact on your life. And so the next four Sundays, uh, we'll be looking at that teaching. During that time, now that's four Sundays, but if you add up the days from August 5th to August 26th, it's 21 days. And so during that same time that we're getting that teaching, we're going to have this prayer journal that we're going to give out in life groups called the 21-Day Challenge. Inside here is, is the five prayer requests that I've been talking about with you. Uh, inside here will be a place where you as a, as a group, as a life group, can kind of say, hey, here's some specific places we want to pray about and see God move and work in our midst. And then there'll be a place for you individually, for your, for your individual life, your family, uh, to put down some prayer requests. And then as you go throughout the, the 21 days... Uh, there's just some, some prayer encouragement and, and a journal for you to kind of write what you're praying about, what you're seeing God do. And so we'll be giving this prayer journal out all during this 21 days. There are going to be prayer events going on each day uh, up here at the church. And uh, folks, we're just going to, as a family of God, we're just going to watch and see what he does in our midst. And I want you to be a part of that. I, I don't want you to miss out on that or, or hear about it from somebody else. I want you to have the opportunity to be the one telling others what you saw God do in your midst. So I really encourage you. That's a lot about what uh, Wednesday night is about. We're going to be getting some of the details and what's going to be going on and how you can be involved. So you may want to avail yourself of Wednesday night here at 6 o'clock. But uh, really encourage you to come here next week, whether it's for one hour or two hours, and uh, get inside of a life group and see what God might say to you uh, in, in, in your prayer life. I think, I think August is going to launch something really incredible uh, in the life of this church, not just for that month, uh, but for the rest of this year and maybe something of historical proportion. I mean, why not? 
Why not believe in God in that kind of way? And that's the way we're going to be praying. Well, folks, we're going to continue today our our study uh, of the letter to the Romans. And you know, folks, if I were to make the comment to you that coming to Christ changes everything, I, I doubt anybody would hear that as a revolutionary statement. If I said coming to Christ changes your life, you wouldn't grab a pencil and write that down. I've never heard that before. Could you say that again? Eh, No, we've heard that. We know that. It's obvious. But if it's obvious, then why isn't it? Why isn't it obvious that it's changed everything? That's not an accusation against you, your individual, your personal prayer life. It's not an accusation against any one individual out there. You know what it is? It is an accusation against what I might call the American brand of Christianity. Folks, doesn't it seem like, and when I say American, I'm talking about all of us. I'm talking about, I don't even know what the percentage is right now. Five, six, seven out of every ten people in America would say they fall under some kind of title Christian. They have some kind of belief that they, yeah, that's what I am. If they're thinking I'm a Christian, five out of six, six out of seven, I mean, seven out of ten. Uh, if all of us are Christians, then why is there no real difference between us and unbelievers? I mean, I mean, doesn't it seem like coming to Christ really doesn't require that you change anything? There, there's no real change necessary I mean, if you look at us and unbelievers, we've got the same problems. We fall into the same statistics. We have the same pursuits. We have a lot of the same values. I'm not saying there's no difference at all, but folks, there's a lot that's so common that you can't hardly tell the difference. If coming to Christ has changed everything, then how is it that you and I can live next door to unbelievers for years Work with unbelievers for years. Go out to the ball field and play ball with unbelievers for years. And they don't know we're a Christian. They didn't know that was something important, something big. I mean, if we've had this big change, then how can people live in our midst for years and, and never even know? I'm not suggesting, by the way, that we get weird. I'm not suggesting that, you know, you've got to take, you've got to gather up your Christianity and you've got to learn how to shove it into people's face and once you've got it in their face, then start cramming it down their throat. I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying you need to advertise your Christianity on the back of your car. Some of you shouldn't. You drive under the influence of the devil. So that would, that would mess things up. That would make, that'd make matters worse. But what I am talking about, folks, is if there has been this change... If there's been this movement in our life, you say, what movement? Well, think about what the New Testament tells us. When, when I, when you, when we came to Christ, I moved from dark to light, right? I moved from being a child of the devil to being a child of God. I moved from a future in hell to a future in heaven, I moved from being a follower of sin and self in the world to being a follower of Jesus. Man, if all that movement has taken place in my life, if that movement has taken place in your life, then should there not be a clear, and folks, that's the operative word, should there not be a clear difference between us who follow Christ and those who do not? I think what happens a lot of time is not change, but it's some adjustments. 
We, we tweak some things. I, I'm, a, I'm a new follower in Christ. I've accepted him as my Savior and Lord. So now, well, I've got to be busy on Sunday morning, right? I, I've got to go to this building every Sunday morning. So that changes. And, and now that I'm a Christian, I'm not going to cuss as much. And, and I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to pray. Oh, and I'm going to smile. That's what Christians do. We smile. And I'm going to tell the truth most of the time. I mean, it, folks, think about it. When we think about I'm a Christian, a lot of times in American branded Christianity, that means we've established a little checklist, a little to-do list. Okay, I've got to, I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I've got to do, okay, I've done that. I'm good. I'm a follower of Christ now. And there's no real big change. We just tweak some things. We tweak our schedule. We tweak our language. We add a couple of events and we're good. Is that what God had in mind? Is that what presented to us in His Word? As we have worked our way through this letter to the Romans, we, man, we have worked through 11 chapters now. And in those 11 chapters, we have learned that you, that me, that us, humanity, that we are on a collision course with God's wrath. Hard to think about. We don't want to think about ourselves or each other this way. But folks, God, God would be good if he judged this world. God would be good if he destroyed humanity. We have rebelled. We have fought him. We have ignored him. You and I watch the news. We look at all the problems out there in the world. Folks, everybody in this room has pitched in to the problems that we have in our world. We're all a part of it. We've all produced this. This humanity that has rebelled and fought God. And so we're on a collision course with his wrath. That is where we're going. That's what's happening as we go through rich or poor, healthy or unhealthy, happy or unhappy, what difference does it make? We're running headlong into the wrath of God. But, boy, praise God for but, right? We've also learned in Romans that there's a chance to get on the exit ramp. There's a chance to get off this collision course. And that is to have a collision course with God's mercy. Much better than God's wrath. You and I have a, a chance to run headlong into the mercy of God when we place our faith, when we place our trust not in our goodness, not in our religion, but we place our trust in Jesus Christ and his work for us on the cross. And it's that mercy, that's the mercy that moves us from light to dark, the child of the devil to the child of God. It's that mercy that does that work in our life. And so these first 11 chapters have been developing for us the, the wrath of God, the problem of man, the righteousness of God, the mercy of God. We've been learning a lot in 11 chapters, but we're about to take a turn as we go into chapter 12 to the end of the book, chapter 16. We're going to move from more of a doctrinal look to a practical look. We're, we're going to take a turn as we come into chapter 12 from what we believe to how we live. As a matter of fact, when you look at Romans 12, 1, one of the, the key words there is the word, therefore. After 11 chapters of looking at all we're to understand, all we're to know, all we're to believe, therefore, this is the difference it should make. Therefore, this is how you should then live. This is the change that should take place. And Romans chapter 12 is going to begin to define for us, explain for us the change that should take place in our lives as believers. 
Okay, this isn't the change from being lost to being saved. We're not talking about the change of going from a child of the devil to the child of God. That's already happened. As we enter 12.1, it is assuming you are a child of God. That has already happened. Now, how does your life need to respond? How does your life need to change? And that's what chapter 12 is going to talk to us about. And it's going to talk about that change in terms of relationships. You can kind of outline chapter 12 through different relationships. I'm using an outline that I got from uh, Chip Ingram. Chip Ingram wrote a book called Living on the Edge. The entire book is on Romans 12. This guy's written an entire book on one chapter of the Bible, Romans 12. It is a tremendous read. You'd love it. If you're heading to the beach soon, grab that, kindle it, do whatever you need to do. That would be a great read for you this summer. Chip Ingram, Living on the Edge. In that book, he outlines Romans 12 this way. Five relationships. Okay, I'm a, I'm a new believer in Christ. How do I respond to his mercy? What's the change that is to take place in my life? Verse 1 is going to talk about a change in our relationship with God. Verse 2 is going to talk about a change in our relationship with the world. Verse 3 is going to talk about a change in my relationship with myself. And then verse 9, a change in our relationship with each other, believers, who we gather to worship with. And then verse 14 and following, a change in our relationship with the world. You might want to, I mean, with unbelievers, you might want to jot that down in your margins, kind of maybe a key word outside of each verse, and and you'll kind of get a feel for what Romans 12 is going to walk you through. And folks, as you see that, you start to realize God probably does imagine a pretty radical change taking place in our life, right? I mean, have you ever thought about what has changed in your life? From the moment you lived as an unbeliever, not a follower of Christ, to the moment you became and and beyond a follower of Christ, what's the big change? Is that why Christ came to this world? Did, did, Did God leave the glory of heaven, put on humanity, put on flesh die a horrific death on the cross so that you and I could have a little bit different schedule on Sunday morning? So that we wouldn't cuss as much? Did, did he go to the cross to make some tweaks? No, folks, he went to the cross because a pretty revolutionary, pretty radical change needed to take place. Let's begin to study that change. This week, we're going to look at verse 1, the change that takes place in our relationship with God. So if you have your Bible open, look down there at verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some in the chairs in front of you, or you can just look up here on the screen. It's just one verse, so it makes it easy to put it on the screen today. Paul's writing, remember, 11 chapters, 11 chapters of doctrine, 11 chapters of what we believe. And then he says to you, and he says to me, I appeal to you. Therefore, in light of everything we've looked at in the first 11 chapters, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. That's your spiritual worship. Now remember, the question we're answering is, I was on a collision course with God's wrath. But I've had a chance for God's mercy to touch my life. I now possess, I now have the mercy of God. In light of the mercy of God, in light of the wrath of God, what's the change that should take place in my life? And in helping you and me answer that question, Paul says, I plead with you, I beg you 
and give yourselves as a living sacrifice to God, that would be worship. That would be what he is worthy of. That word appeal there, your translation may say, I urge you. Uh, that word there is a very interesting word in the, in the Greek language. The verb there is parakaleo. It's the verb form of the noun paraclete. Some of you maybe who've done some in-depth Bible study think that that name seems kind of seems to ring a bell. That, that word paraclete's actually a nickname, if you will, for the Holy Spirit. Uh, the word parakaleo appeal there is encourage. The noun, the encourager, the Holy Spirit is the encourager. Now there's different words for encouragement in the Greek language. They have, they have different meanings. We have one word, but we do use it in different ways. I mean, you think about it. I can say, man, I, you know, I really encourage you to try out number four on the menu there. Yeah, yeah, you ought to try that out. I mean, I saw a great movie Friday night. You ought, you ought to go see this movie. That's a form of encouragement. I, I want you to do this. I want you to try that. Now, I don't have a lot of conviction by that. I don't care if you have number four, number five, or number 27 on the menu. Doesn't matter to me. I'm just telling you, I've had number four. It's pretty good. You might want to try it. I'm suggesting that word right there is not a suggestion. That word right there that Paul is using, he's not saying, hey, you ought to try this. You know, I know you're a believer and maybe you want to grow. Hey, try this out. It's not that kind of encouragement. That word is an encouragement that comes from a strong conviction. This is what is right. This is, I'm encouraging not in what you might want to do and what you have to do. It's also a word that has behind it love. It's an encouragement that is driven by love. It's an encouragement that is motivated by love. And because of that, it is an encouragement that only has you in mind. You know, we do a lot of encouragement in which we're the recipient of what we're encouraging. That, that's not a bad thing. I'm not talking about selfishness or manipulation. But we can encourage people to do things that when they do that, I, I, I win too. You know, I can encourage my kids to clean their room. They should do that. That's good for them. And I like it too. You know, I like a clean, orderly house. So, so we all win. So I can encourage somebody to do something that I would enjoy also, that I would like also. This word does not mean that. This is a word that when the encouragement is giving, it has you, it has the one being encouraged as the sole recipient of, of what is good here. So I'm trying to answer this question. I've received God's mercy. What's the next step look like? What's the difference to be in my life? And this is where Paul says, man, I beg you. I plead with you, man. I, th this is for you. I don't get anything out of this. This is completely for you and for your life. Give yourselves to God. Boy, folks, I think as you begin to unwrap this verse, it's pretty clear uh, that, that this idea, it destroys the idea that coming to Christ is some tweaks. That coming to Christ is some minor adjustments in our lives. No, folks, this verse has in mind a, a pretty radical change. A radical separation from the world. That's what we're going to be looking at next week in verse 2. I have the best sermon title I've ever had to a sermon next week. Next week's sermon title is Three Donuts and a Broccoli. I mean, j j come back just for that, folks. You just got, what in the world? Three, three Donuts and a Broccoli. That's next Sunday. So next Sunday, we'll be looking at that radical separation from the world. Today, we're looking at that radical, revolutionary dedication to God. And that's what this verse is talking about. But folks, it's, boy, you know what? In our context, it's a little bit challenging to say, dedicate yourselves to God. Because we use that word a lot, and it, it, it really doesn't mean that much, does it? I mean, we dedicate babies, and we dedicate buildings, and we dedicate our lives. And 
usually when you hear that phrase, what does that mean? It means we've said some kind of prayer over it, right? I've said a prayer. I've said, oh God, this is yours. You bless it. This is for you. We say that prayer. But really, honestly, when we say amen, then we get up and we go from there. And, and not a lot is different. It, our dedications are not really dedications. We're just asking God to make something good, to bless it, to make it right. That is not the biblical concept of dedication. When you dedicated something to God in the Bible, it became His. You, you, you dedicated all, all kinds of things. That be, you go to the Old Testament, you'd see them dedicating gold, dedicating building supplies, dedicating gifts and abilities, dedicating people. And when that dedication took place, it was now wholly, completely God's. Not in an abstract way, not in a metaphorical way that never really showed up anywhere, but in a very objective, clear way. It was God's for His purposes and the fulfillment of His plans. Boy, a great picture of this is uh, in the opening chapters of Samuel. 1 Samuel 1, 1 Samuel chapter 2, there's a, a lady there by the name of Hannah. Hannah can't get pregnant. Hannah has been barren and, and she wants to have a child and she is pr praying to God, pleading with God. And she finally comes to a place in her prayer life where she says, God, if, if you will give me a son, I will dedicate that son to you. Now, we, well, I know that baby dedication, right? We march him up here on the stage, say a little prayer and it's over. She says, I will dedicate that son to you. So she gets pregnant, has a little boy, he's named Samuel. We come to know him in the Bible as one of the great prophets, one of the great judges in Israel. So she has this little boy, little baby, and she's nursing him, caring him, growing him. She, he, she begins to wean him. He begins to come into those ages that, that we call the preschool years. And so Samuel hits about four years old, five years old, and Hannah takes little Samuel by the hand and, and she walks him up to the temple, drops him off, and leaves. It wasn't Mother's Day out. She didn't leave him for the morning. She didn't leave him for the day. She left him. She left him with Eli. Oh, she went back every year. She went back every year, brought him a fresh change of clothes and... Man, she loved him and she thought about him. She didn't text him, I'm almost positive. <laughs> but see, she told God, I will dedicate this boy to you. So when he was weaned, when he could stand, she did just that. She gave him to God. Very objective, very concrete meaning. Not, not just a blessing and a prayer and then we go on as is. It now belongs to God. And boy, when you dedicated in the Bible, you dedicated a certain kind of thing. You dedicated the first, the first of your money, the first of your abilities, the first of your time, the first of your life. You dedicated the best. Boy, the Israelites struggled with that sometimes. And they were called on it by God. They, you know, they had, a, they had to perform a lot of sacrifices. They had to bring sheep. A lot of time, lambs would be what they were dedicating to God. And I'd go over here to my flock to get a lamb. And I'd say, this one's got a broken leg. I don't want this one mating. Let's give this one to God. And they did that a good bit. It was called a blemished lamb. We do the same thing. We give to God what we don't want anyway. We give to God what we don't need. We give to God leftovers. Yeah, yeah, yeah I've, I've done everything I want to do this week. I'm feeling rested. I'm feeling, I'll give him church this morning. I've paid all my bills. I've, I've, I've got a little extra. 
There's a real mindset of not giving God the first and the best, but giving him the leftover, giving him the blemish, giving him what we don't need anyway. Folks, man, I don't, I don't mean to pick on one thing, but I, again, talking about that American brand of Christianity, how many churches are raising money for the work of God by having yard sales? Folks, instead of giving God their best, they're saying, God, here's my junk. And if you can make pennies on the dollar, then glory to you. You can have all those pennies. Go do all the work you want. That to me just flies in the face of how we dedicate, how we give, how we serve the Lord. And see, the problem is it's inappropriate to not give our first. It's inappropriate to not give our best. Not, Not just because it's inappropriate to God. It's inappropriate to us. Because you see, how I serve, how I give to the Lord begins to define the framework by which I understand who He is. And so if I constantly treat God as, yeah, I've got a little bit extra. Yeah, I've got a little bit of time. Folks, all I'm doing is I'm just decreasing His worthiness. Guess what? It's hard to put faith in a God who's not worth very much to you. And faith is all you've got. Faith is our cornerstone. It's faith in Christ. And yet we have so belittled God in how we look at Him, then how are we to turn around and put faith in Him? Now, in Romans 12, 1, Paul's not talking about giving money or time. He's not talking about giving gifts and abilities. He's not even talking about you giving the best of you. In Romans 12, 1, Paul is talking about you giving the entirety of you. Giving all of who you are to God. And folks, that's not meant to just be a say, God, I give myself to you, but now I'm going to go out of here and live like I still belong to me. It means that God, my marriage is now yours. Not my marriage, good marriage, bad marriage. We're okay, I guess, like everybody else's marriage. God, my marriage is yours to advance your kingdom and your purposes. You do in this marriage what you want to do in my life, their life, our lives to serve your kingdom. God, my money is yours. You direct how it's used. You direct where it goes. My kids are yours. My free time is yours. God, my hurts. Boy, some of us love our hurts. You know, we all think, I want to get rid of my... No, no, we don't. We, we embrace our hurts. Our hurts, some of us wouldn't have any emotional energy at all if we didn't have our hurts to think about. It's what defines us. It's what empowers us. It's what motivates us. Man, your hurts become, God, what do you want to do in my hurts? What do you want to do in my disappointments? They're yours now. Folks, if this verse doesn't scare you, you don't understand it. If If this is right now, you're not just a tad uncomfortable thinking, am I supposed to be in this room? Was there another room? (laughs) If this verse doesn't scare you, you're not getting it. If this verse doesn't lead you and me to go home this afternoon, sometime this week, to start thinking about every area, everything, every relationship in my life, and see if I can connect a clear line from that relationship, a clear line from my job to God. Can everything be drawn a clear line to God? And this is how that thing is serving God. This is how this piece of my, it's not mine. I can, we need to pick up our job by the hand just like Samuel and walk it up to the temple and leave it there. This is God's now. I don't get to pick and choose what happens here. If it doesn't scare you, you're not getting it. This is huge. I think it's one of the biggest verses in the New Testament. 
I think we wouldn't say it out loud, at least not in church. Why? Why would I do this? Why would anybody do this? By the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. Dedicate yourself. Give the entirety of yourself to God and his service and his kingdom. In other words, Paul's saying God's mercy is big enough reason. Think about it this way. What are you without the mercy of God? What do you have without the mercy of God? Now, folks, I ask that question, and clearly, you know what, very quickly, what my mind runs to is people that I assume or believe have not availed themselves of the mercy of God, have no interest in the mercy of God, have no interest in God, and I look at them, and I see some of them, man, they're healthy, they're wealthy, they're happy, they're successful, they look like they're doing just fine without the mercy of God. So when I ask a question, what are you without the mercy? Well, look at that person, they don't have the mercy of God. For how long are they that way? They're on a collision course with God's wrath. What difference does it make what trinkets you enjoy on the way to God's wrath? What difference does it make what experiences you have on the way to God's wrath? They may be enjoying a moment, but in the snap of a fingers, they are in a permanent horrible. The reality is, folks, you are nothing, I am nothing without the mercy of God. I have nothing without the mercy of God. And it's in that mindset that Paul would say, the mercy of God is big enough for you and I to consider that a reason, a cause to consider giving the balance of my life in dedication to God. It's a living sacrifice. It goes on day after day. When you think of the word sacrifice, you think of killing something, right? This is a living sacrifice. Every single day, I'm yielding a little bit more. I'm surrendering. I mean, that's Christian growth and maturity, folks. It's surrendering more and more. It's yielding more and more. It's dedicating over to Him more and more in our lives. It's a holy dedication. Do you see that word? It's a holy. You know, we all have dedications in life. I mean, we're all dedicated to things. And everybody in your life that knows you, I'll use the word well, but I mean, if they know you once a month, if they know you, they know your dedications. Nobody can hide their dedications. I mean, if you know me at all, you know I'm dedicated to the Broncos. I praise God for the fall and football. It's coming. Just a few more weeks. I mean, you know, you, we, we got our hats, we've got our jerseys, we talk about I'm de- Even more than the Broncos, I'm dedicated to the, anybody take a guess? Texas Aggies, praise God for Texas A&M. That's where Jesus is returning, you know. That's where his foot will step down right there in College Station, Texas. Man, you know that about, if you've been around, you know that. Why? Because I'm dedicated to it. Have you ever heard him? Well, he's dedicated to his job. Boy, she, she's really dedicated to her family. Boy, he's dedicated to his wife. You know, when we, we look at people, we say, this is what they're dedicated. You cannot hide a dedication, which is why I say it is impossible to say, I am dedicated to Christ, even though none of the people up at work know that I am even a follower of His. It's impossible to be dedicated to something and hide it. Now, our dedication is to be holy. That means set apart. That's all the word holy means. Set apart, distinct, not like anything else, incomparable. So the definitive picture of holiness is God because he is set apart. He is set above. He's not like anything else. You can't compare anything to God. 
Now, I've got dedications in my life. You've got things you're dedicated to in life. But our dedication to God is to be holy. That means it's to be set apart. My dedication to God is not to be comparable to anything else. If my dedication to God and my dedication to the Broncos can be compared, then my dedication to God is not holy. It doesn't matter even if God comes out on top. Well, Randy, you, you look like you're dedicated to God at about a, about a level eight. And you're dedicated to the Broncos uh, at about a level four. Well, I'm twice as dedicated. Folks, eight and four, that's comparable. My dedication to God should be so set apart, so distinct, it can't be compared to anything else. This verse isn't saying you can't like the Broncos. By all means, like the Broncos. It's not saying you can't be dedicated to work or, or to a person. It's just saying that dedication should fall so far below your dedication to God. Not even comparable. And then he ends all this by saying, and folks, this is your spiritual worship. That's the translation I used. That's what I wrote up there on the screen. Some of you in your translation, it may say this is your reasonable service. This is your logical Service. That word spiritual worship is kind of a tricky word. It can, it can be translated spiritual. It can be translated logical. I like both words. I think they both work. And the idea, folks, remember what I said? If, you, if, you're not, if this verse doesn't scare you, you're not getting it. This is a big verse, maybe the biggest verse in the New Testament. And yet Paul ends it all by saying, what else are you going to do? This, for somebody who has received the mercy of God, this is the logical next step. Is it big? It's huge. Can you do anything else? Nope. This is it. There's not a other step. This is the step. And since it's the only step, it doesn't matter how big it is. It's the next logical step that you and I have to take. You know, there's a great picture of dedication in the Old Testament in the life of Abraham. God came to Abraham when he was 75 years old. And, and Abraham and Sarah had never had a child. And, and God says, you know, Abraham, I'm going, to give you, I'm going to give you a son. Now, my first thought was, any chance you could have done this about 30 years ago? 40 years ago? But God says, I'm going to give you a son. Makes that promise to him. 24 years pass. Abraham's now 99. I'm really thinking, God, could you answer this 60 years ago? 99 years old. And God says, I'm going to answer your prayer next year. And sure enough, Abraham and Sarah have a child. They have a son named Isaac. Boy, Isaac, can you imagine the, the excitement, the pride, the joy with which he looked at him? I mean, yeah, there'd be the normal, any parent looking, that's, that's my boy, that's my child, that's our love, that's our excitement. But can you imagine, not only would Abraham be looking at him with all of that, but every time Abraham would look at him, he'd think, boy, that's the power of God. I mean, generally speaking, 100-year-old people don't have kids, right? Y'all are with me on the, the biology here. Every time he would look at him, he'd think, man, that's, that's just a reminder. God keeps his promises. So much excitement, so much love, such passion for his son Isaac there. And then Isaac gets about the age of 12, and God comes to him one night, and he says, Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. I want you to give your son to me. Not like we saw Hannah do with, with Samuel, but like sacrifice, like kill. The only thing that passage explains about why God's asking us is, is that God is going to test him. God does that, folks. God tests us. 
He tests us to see what is most important in our lives. He tests us to see what our dedications are. Now, he's not testing that because he wants to learn it. (laughs) Folks, the scripture says God knows more about your heart and mind than you know about your heart and mind. He knows more about the reality of you than you know about the reality of you. The test is for you. The test is so that you and I can see what is most important. Do you know that all of us have been through tests? I'm confident and didn't even know we were being tested. Whether we succeeded or whether we failed, we didn't even realize what was going on there. So it says that God tests him. Now it never says that Abraham loves Isaac more than God. The, the, The scripture never says that. It just says that God tests him. So he comes to him that night. He says, I want you to sacrifice your son. And to me, one of the most amazing verses in all the Bible, this is in Genesis chapter 22, the next verse, the very next words after God makes that call in Abraham's life are these words. Early the next morning. I don't know. I think that's something if God would have asked me, I'd want to, I'd want to work through that a little bit. I'm going to pray about that a little bit. Early the next, what word early blows me away. No doubt, no delay, no debate. How? Because Abraham knew this day doesn't belong to me. Isaac doesn't belong to me. My body doesn't belong to me. My family doesn't belong to me. Everything I am, everything I have is his. He has spoken. There's nothing to debate. There's no reason to delay. Early the next morning, he woke up Isaac and they went to Mount Moriah. Now, if you're not familiar with that story, God stops him from doing that. God makes it clear there and throughout Scripture that human sacrifice, child sacrifice will never be a part of the worship of Him. But man, you talk about passing a test with flying colors. You see, the very simple thing, hey, Abraham, what's my, wor- my mercy worth to you? Is it worth Isaac? God has and God will continue to test you. To find out what the mercy... You're not paying him back. You're not buying it. You have it. You possess it as a follower of Christ. But God will test what that mercy is worth to you. You can do a quick test yourself. Answer these two questions. Where can God not go in my life? Number two, what can God not have in my life? Now, we're sitting in church, right? So we're all going to be very quick. God can go everywhere. God can, God can have anything. And every single one of us is lying. If we're being honest with ourselves, folks, every one of us, pretty close, we've got places we don't want God to go. Maybe you don't want Him to go to work. Oh, you want Him to bless work? Get rid of that boss. Double my income. Help me be successful. Bless my work. And if we were honest, we'd end the prayer this way, from afar. Because I don't, I don't really want to be connected, not in a real crazy kind of Jesus freak way. I don't, I don't really want to be connected with you in that. I don't want you to go there, is what we're saying. 
Folks, we have places we don't want God to go. Our hurts, God, I'm comfortable with my hurt. I know how to handle my hurt. I know how to handle that person who hurt me. I like the way I handle that person who hurt me. I like the way I let this eat me up inside. I'm very comfortable dealing with this. I don't want you coming in here and owning my hurt. Where can God not go? And what can he not have? And as you answer those questions, you're answering, and that is the limit of what God's mercy is worth to me. Your mercy is not worth that. And that's where you're challenging God to test you. Say it again. That's where you're challenging God to test you. It's for your benefit. Remember that word encouragement? I appeal to you. This is for you. It's not for me. It's not for God. This is for you. By the mercies of God. What's his mercy worth to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that... uh, Somewhere in the course of the rest of this day, the rest of this week, we will, we will take a moment to really kind of think through that question. We'll be honest with ourselves about where we don't want you to go and what we don't want you to have. God, I pray we'll come face to face with that and realize that these are the places I'm not dedicated. These are the, the things I won't yield over to God. Lord, help us to realize we're not keeping something from you. We're not taking something from you. We're not protecting that thing that we're holding on to. We're not making sure that it works right. God, we're hurting ourselves. We're hurting our relationship with you. We're hurting that thing that we think we love and hold on to. And ultimately, God, those are the places where we're saying your mercy is just not worth that much. And that will never produce anything right and good in our relationship with you. Father, I want your mercy to be worth everything to me. I don't want there to be anywhere in my life that I'm afraid of you going. I don't want there to be anything in my life that I'm afraid of yielding over to you. God, would you give us a fresh vision, a fresh awareness of just what your mercy is and what it means to our lives. And let us realize the only reasonable response, the only logical response is to give you all of ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.